Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. It's actually making sure that what we build at local and regional level is practical, that it's representative, um, and it builds capacity and supports the building of capacity at the local level. And in that way, we're going to feed into a system where we've got sort of leader-to-leader meetings happening locally and regionally, leader-to-leader meetings happening at the national level, and you move towards what I would hope to see is nation-based, nation-to-nation recognition where our Indigenous communities, Indigenous nations across the country are being able to represent themselves through this process. Representation, voice and treaty. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The upcoming referendum to enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament has seen ongoing debate around the practicality and legal implications of the proposal. For months, we've had discussions with family, friends and work colleagues. And as we edge closer to the date, we now know what the question we will be asked to vote on will be. While some Indigenous leaders approve of a voice to Parliament, others are calling for a treaty or the establishment of a truth and justice style commission. Queensland began its path to treaty in 2019 and earlier this year introduced landmark laws to Parliament in order to help the Queensland Government sign a treaty or treaties with First Nations people. It follows similar frameworks agreed upon in Victoria between the State Government and the First Peoples Assembly. But what should a treaty actually achieve and what is the process to get there? To discuss this further, I'm joined by Professor Daryl Rigney, Arnie Geraldine Atkinson and former Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner Mick Gooder. My first question to each of you, and I'll start with you, Arnie Geraldine, is what motivates you to do the work you're doing now? Larissa, it's really about carrying on the legacy of my elders and what they've taught me, what growing up and being in their shadows all those years, they're pretty out there and, and spoke up publicly and to governments and it was following in their footsteps. And I really, really felt it was really important that their legacy, what they created and what they did for our families was carried on as a family member. But it was also about making sure and all of that, and it was always about working for community, but making sure that what we were doing is ensuring that our children were learning and that we were like, was carrying on for them. They'd worked so hard in national affairs. The thing about it is we've always acknowledged that we never ever ceded sovereignty of our land and uh, we'd always been staunch in standing up for our rights, in particular in relation to when the colonisers first landed and the stories that were told by elders, our ancestors, that they were carried on as well. So I just felt, you know, that it was really important that the movement for justice and for our first peoples, and what I've been working on at the moment is for treaty. It's about carrying on that legacy, and then it's about restoring that self-determination for our communities, and it's about us having a say in matters that affect our culture and, as I said earlier, our communities and, and looking after our country. And because I want to see our beautiful culture and languages thrive I want them to thrive again and, and been, uh, we've been working really hard on ensuring that happens. I guess it's been about having a say on matters that affect us, our culture, our community, in our country, and ensuring that all that wisdom and knowledge that they've passed on to me is passed down to our future generations. Well, you've done that work tirelessly, also tirelessly, <laughs> Uncle Mick Gooder. Many, many years on the national stage as well as the grassroots work that you do. What motivates you to keep doing the work that you've been involved in? I always think there's something better out there. It's not going to be Nirvana, but somewhere down the track, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people have got to be honoured and recognised as the first peoples of this country. And then with that comes an understanding that the stuff that beset us, we can fix it. And I guess that comes from a whole line of people. We're just ordinary Gungaloo people in central Queensland. We haven't been on the national stage, but being raised by a family of, you know, my dad was a unionist. My mum fought for all of us going to school, same as my aunties. Coming from that 
perspective of just trying to make things right, making things better. And then you get educated and you go around, you see all the other stuff happening in Australia and you pull it together. And I still go back, Larissa, to thinking about how good this country can be when we are treated as equals. And that's what motivates me. Is And it's like Geraldine, that's all about the future and the future generations coming after us rather than us right now. So I think that's what motivates me, that there is going to be something better out there for all of us. So I, I just keep going. You sure do. Also always going is Professor Daryl Rigney, who's uncle to many, but you're closest to me in age. I just wonder if you can share with us what has been motivating you to do the work that you've been doing in the academy, but of course on country with your own Naranjeri people. Yeah, thanks, Larissa. And like Annie Geraldine and Uncle Mick, you know, it's a similar story in many ways. I was born and raised in a community that had been trying to do things better and to make a better world for us as young people coming through. And and that kind of history of being involved, my father was an ATSIC regional uh, council chairperson. Many of the elders and leaders that I looked up to in our community were um, struggling to try and make better worlds, whether it was in education or um, in, in the environmental kind of work and the management of country through to all other kinds of things that were important to us. And so I guess that growing up in that environment sort of starts shapes you as a young person. And later on, I went into the higher education sector to work and I just was so privileged to spend time with some really smart people, First Nations people, non-Indigenous peoples, who again helped to shape my sense of what it meant to be uh, living in a, a society that was uh, socially just and was equitable, but at the same time very much focused on building stronger, better communities whose ways of knowing, seeing and doing in the world were both celebrated, acknowledged and respected. You've all worked nationally, you've worked locally and you're working on state-based processes, which is a bit of the focus of the conversation today. So again, Artie Geraldine, I might start with you since Victoria has gotten furthest down this track. But from your perspective, being right there in the thick of things, what are some of the things that have been achieved in Victoria since the state decided to go down the path to treaty? What we've done is, and I just want to say from the beginning, Larissa, that what we've been able to do when we started was to ensure that what we were proceeding with was going to be what the community wanted. So it was really important that what we did was get out when we first started to ensure that our, because we're a democratically elected voice here in Victoria, our First Peoples Assembly of Victoria is, that what we wanted to do was ensure that what we were proceeding with in the journey towards treaty was making sure that communities' voices came through. So we've spent, you know, the last few years over at this, this is our first term, about yarning with mob all over the state about all things treaty. Uh, the conversations that we focused on was how treaty will happen, what the process was going to be, and how we, we could ensure that it was going to be fair and if, inclusive and so on. So based on those conversations and consultations with our mobs across the state, we've managed to reach an agreement on a number of key things. And what we decided from the beginning was at our first assembly meeting was that uh, we wanted to ensure that we had a truth-telling process because what we said, we couldn't have treaty in this state without the truth being told about our people and what had occurred with colonisation and since colonisation. So we've been able to do that and we were able to then negotiate with government to set up the Uruk Justice Commission and that commission has the same powers as a Royal Commission. We didn't want it to be called the Royal Commission, Lisa, because our mobs didn't agree with Royal Commissions and we said we didn't ever get what all we wanted from, you know, past Royal Commissions. So we said that it would be an inquiry and we made sure that it wasn't going to be classified as a Royal Commission, but it still has the same powers and it's still government has got to talk to the Commission about their part and the roles that they've played and the impacts that they've had on our lives. So that was really an important part and that and then our stories and our elder stories needed to be told. The other thing that we've been able to do is we were able to get 
and independent umpire for treaty negotiations. So that's our treaty authority. And that sets out the usual government system. We ensured that, that it wasn't within government, that it was independent of government and it was independent from First Peoples Assembly or Victoria. We wanted to make sure that it was grounded, that the people that were going to sit on that treaty authority, because they'll determine what treaties in this state are going to be like and look like. So we feel that they needed to be grounded through our culture, uh, their culture and Aboriginal law, L-O-R-E, plus Aboriginal law. And then the other thing was we needed then to initiate a treaty negotiation framework, which is essentially the rule book for treaty making in Victoria. So it's going to enable traditional owners right across the state to negotiate treaties in their areas, as well as a statewide treaty uh, that we wanted as well. And the other thing that our treaty-making process that we were mandated to do as well was to put in place a self-determination fund so that we could help the traditional owners get treaty ready. Also, that we wanted to do was create wealth and prosperity for our future generations. But we really felt that it's really important that we had the funds available for localised traditional owner treaties, that they would have an equal footing with government when it came to those negotiations. So that that we felt was really important. What we're doing now is uh, we're just sort of moving on, making sure that as we finish our term and the next iteration of First Federal Assembly uh, follow us, that, so we'll have our election soon, our term finishes. But it's about making sure that we've got the right people in place so they can choose who they want representing them in their communities in relation to those treaty negotiations. There's so much that's been happening there. If you're not in Victoria watching it closely, it might surprise a lot of people about how much has actually progressed by the First Nations communities in Victoria. Such a great snapshot, Aunty Geraldine. So Uncle Mick, also, of course, there's been quite a lot of action in Queensland progressing the idea of a treaty and the process of a treaty, probably a little away from the national spotlight. I wonder if you could share with us your reflections on where the process is and some of the things that you've learned along the way as well. First of all, can I congratulate Geraldine and Mob? You know, they're, they're leading the way in Australia on this, and we look to them for a lot of learnings from how they've done things and and it's been great. I, I guess our last thing, the Treaty Advancement Committee, we engaged with Victoria in Northern Territory. We were going ahead full bore up there as well. I've got to say, Geraldine, it was such a beautiful, every time we talked, it was, we were doing things differently and everyone was so supportive of each other. Uh, even though there was differences and and good luck to you, Mob, doing that, and what about you, Mob? And, and it was just a beautiful relationship, I thought, and I really think we've got to continue supporting each other like that. It, it was an exercise where there was no politics. It was just everyone trying to do the right thing by their mob, albeit there were differences of approach. And But listening to Geraldine now, I don't think we were that much different. I think we, we went out and consulted with our mob about... First of all, whether, you know, sometimes you've got to ask the bleeding obvious, do you want a treaty? And overwhelmingly people in Queensland said yes, and then we talked a bit about what should be in a treaty. But more than anything, we sort of knew about truth-telling and, and we addressed it, but it became so important that the legislation that we're just working on the final amendments for before it gets voted on next month is actually about the path to treaty and it sets up uh, Treaty Institute and, and a, a truth-telling inquiry. And really, Larissa, it's like it's, it's almost a basic truth, isn't it, that you can't have a treaty unless it's based on the truth. So I think most jurisdictions are going to go down that track that we need to find what we call in Queensland the complete truth of Queensland's colonisation. And when we did ours, we did, we did a little bit different. We did in Queensland was include non-Indigenous people in our consultation and, I, and I've got to say, my observations and the, the consultations I attended told me that the in non-Indigenous people were probably a bit more upset than we were that they didn't know things and there wasn't in the curriculum and we didn't know, we don't know these things happen. And I think the appetite out there is so great now, you know, 
we we no longer hide behind things. I, I look at Germany where they teach the Holocaust as a part of the curriculum. So they don't shy away from their past, they confront it. And I think we will start to mature as a nation when we, we do that with truth telling. So a lot of our stuff has been driven by um, the consultations. I think if you follow the working group, the eminent panel, the Treaty Advancement Committee, and now the interim truth and treaty body, and then eventually the, the, the when the legislation is passed, the institute and the um, and the truth telling inquiry, uh, you'll see a consistency there about community driving this. And 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 one of the things we drove really hard was setting up an institute it cannot be like a peak body that. I, I describe it as it's not the boss. The bosses are the communities that have got to decide whether they want a treaty, who the treaty party is going to be and, and what's going to be in a treaty, to the point where even the legislation makes it very clear that the Treaty Institute can't negotiate treaties. So everything we've done in Queensland has been driven to the community to make decisions, like I said, who the treaty party is whether they want a treaty, who's going to be included in that treaty, whether it's going to be a treaty. And, and we're going to have lots of treaties in Queensland. I don't think we're going to have one treaty. There's a lot of talk in Queensland now about treaties between different groups, like I'm Gungaloo, Rockhampton's Durrumble. A lot of Gungaloo people live on Durrumble country. We want to maybe have an arrangement to look after our mob on Durrumble country, which may necessarily or may be the best way to deal with that as a treaty between groups. So we're, we're totally open about it in Queensland. If you ask me what's going to be in the treaty, I can't tell you. I could tell you what might be in a Gungaloo treaty, but as far as uh, someone who's been involved in this from the word go, I think that's going to have to be decisions made by communities, and I think that's the strength of what we're all doing. It's a community that's got to make these fundamental decisions. Like I said, you want a treaty, who the treaty party is, what do you want on a treaty, and then we go on a process of negotiating treaties. So I think that's the exciting part for me. You know, we may have been under the radar, but and and, and in that sense, poor old new mob in Victoria, Geraldine, have been carrying the brunt of this. So we're sort of, we're standing on your shoulders here a bit, but it's so nice to be able to do that. Daryl, Obviously, South Australia has been on its own path and you started down a treaty path under a previous Labor government and then that stopped. And now you've been the first jurisdiction to have what's called a voice to parliament, though, as Arnie Geraldine's pointed out, there have been other representative bodies set up statewide, but it was very specific wording to link in with a national conversation. And of course, you've been involved with this process of nation building, which is absolutely critical in terms of building capacity and having First Nations work in a way that's sovereign and can engage in these processes. So I wonder what your reflections are in terms of where South Australia is. And as you've listened to Arnie Geraldine and Uncle Mick, what are your reflections on what pathway South Australia could be going down and some of the things that you've observed happening in your own state? Yeah, thanks, Larissa. I uh, also wanted to just acknowledge the huge amount of work that people are doing in other jurisdictions, the, the work in Victoria and the work in Queensland. In terms of the processes that have been undertaken, have been uh, really thoughtful, I think, and impressive in terms of the way they're going about it. And there is due time given to thinking about these kind of complex issues, and, and they are complex and challenging. We you know, I've been somewhat uh, underwhelmed and disappointed by where we've landed in South Australia. I, I think four years ago, well, actually going back a bit further than that, in fact, from about 2014, 15 through to early 2018, we were in a really interesting process in South Australia where the, the, there was a, a recognition for the need for Indigenous and nation-building training and education to work with our communities moving towards being recognised in the South Australian government's uh, regional authority policy. And my own community had been a regional authority, had named ourselves as a regional authority some eight, nine years prior to the state government um, developing a policy around regional authorities, and then uh, moving into treaty negotiations. And so I think we already had in South Australia at that time, I would argue, a, a complex representative voice process in place through those sort of mechanisms of nation building, 
regional policy recognition and treaty negotiation. And uh, and so I think, you know, back at that time, we probably already had an advanced version of the Uluru Statement from the heart in many ways. And so when we've kind of landed in 2023 around a, a legislated First Nations voice to Parliament, I think we've, we've kind of missed the opportunity of some really important work that had gone on prior and that wasn't being recognised in today, and it was only you know four four years ago that we were going through this process. So I think, for mine, uh, I think the work around developing community capacity to be able to be an effective voice is the critical issue, and that happens at the local level. So you know, thinking about you know how do you make decisions that are that work in the interest of your community? What are your internal processes for doing so? What is the body that will represent you when you enter into relationships and negotiations with other parties, um, be they uh, governments at the federal, state or indeed local levels, as well as the private sector? So I think the kind of creating the institution, making decisions and making sure that the institutions you build have what's known in the work of nation building as cultural match, that is that the way you go about doing things resonates with the people. It's consistent with their values and their beliefs and the processes that they've undertaken for a long time. Because if it doesn't, and it doesn't do those things, then it won't have legitimacy in the eyes of the people. And so I think we were doing that work in South Australia. We got to the point, as Uncle Mick had talked about, um, in terms of asking people, do you want a treaty? You know, we started with that in South Australia. And again, it came back, yes. And then the second question was, should it be a state-based treaty or should it be Indigenous nation-based treaties, so multiple treaties? And it came back that it should be treaties at the nation level, at the community level. And so the kind of processes that we're undertaking here were very exciting and I think we've um, taken a step back and I, I think failed in relation to where we once were as to what we could have achieved in South Australia. That's the former Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner Mick Gooder. You also heard from Professor Daryl Rigney and Auntie Geraldine Atkinson. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The voice to Parliament has certainly been a contentious issue. Many First Nations people want a treaty, others want sovereignty or constitutional reform, and some disagree entirely. Ideally, we all want to see strong representation in Parliament that will recognise the rights of First Nations people, considering Australia's past, the present and future.
Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Uncle Mick, as someone who's worked at the national level in representative bodies, how important is regional representation as part of the interface with government? And from your work in Queensland, how should these state processes align with what's happening on the national stage? Oh, look, Larissa. That's where it all happens. I, I was involved with Marcia and Tom during their consultations. I did most of Queensland. I did some New South Wales. And I did Tasmania. The common thread across all of those, I've got to be honest, 90% of the conversation talked about regional, local voices. It wasn't about the national stuff. They seemed to be okay with what was being proposed with the national stuff, but the local stuff took 90%. And really that's... Look, I, I'm an ATSEC tragic. I know that's not really popular these days. But oh, I, I think it's getting more and more popular again. <laughs> I, I just think I, I signed up to ATSEC mainly because of the regional decision-making. You know, regional councils were being elected and they were getting there and, and by the time they abolished ATSEC, those regional councils had matured into really good governance. They had so much on them. I think... I've even spoken to people like Peter Shergold, who was head of Prime Minister and Cabinet. He was a former CEO of ATSIC. 
And he's been quoted as saying, I think the biggest mistake we made abolishing ATSIC was abolish regional councils. And, and that's where it all happens. Of course, there's the national stuff, and we've got to be at that level, providing advice to, I think, both parliament and the government. But without the regional voices, we lose it. And and my view is, and I've, I've, I've given this during those consultations about Queensland, like Chris Sarr in Queensland and, and Ray Griggs, who was head of NIA in Canberra at the time, that the mob out there don't really and have never made distinctions between levels of government. They just want services. And if we're going to be successful with this voice, and, and we're now just seeing the stuff released from that report about regional local voices, it's got to be both governments, both levels of government, probably three levels of government, if you include local government, have got to go and, and listen to the voices that are created at the local and regional level. Otherwise, we might as well not go down this track because I think that's where it all happens and that's where people want to say and that's it's it's what affects them, you know. It's, it's like, I suppose, making the, the analogy between that and local government. That's the most, the closest to people on the ground local government and that's why... It's so important to get that right. So it's, I just cannot overstate how important getting the local regional representation right. But I was at the beginning of ATSIC and I used to go to, I was one, one of the first regional managers in ATSIC and go to other Commonwealth departments and say, you've got to come and talk to regional councils. And even the Commonwealth department said, well, we want to talk to that bunch for. It was just a missed opportunity. And we cannot make the same mistake twice. We've got to make both governments, particularly the federal and local government, we've got to get them to give one voice to the communities because mob out there don't make that distinction between local and state and federal governments. They just want services. And, and you know, like I used to get through this, I worked in communities, you know, and you'd have the federal government would say, we build houses and the state government is responsible for delivering services, water, power, sewage to the property line try to talk to mob out there about that. They don't care. So I think unless both governments get serious about providing that one voice back to communities, this isn't going to succeed because that's where the rubber hits the road. I, I, I think it's the most fundamental part of this debate we're going through right now to get that right, the local regional voices. Only Geraldine, I'd like to bring you back in. Obviously, you've just been such a driver in terms of what's been happening in Victoria, but you've also worked very hard on the national stage. I'm thinking of the work you've done around snake and family matters, just to um, name an area where I see you constantly popping up. And I wonder from your perspective, how important is it to align what's happening in the state with the federal? And how do you see that happening since you've been working on both? I think while people may see that they are separate processes, what we're doing here in Victoria and what's happening federally. It is related. We ensured that what we did at our, our last chamber meeting was to ensure that we had support from the entire chamber for the Yes campaign. And what we want to do is make sure that we were ensuring that it was it's worth supporting. It's ensuring that at the voice at a federal level is is exactly what we've been asking for the voice here in Victoria. So it's about ensuring that, you know, our people have a seat at the table when those big decisions are being made. That is that is just so important. That's what we need to do. I really worry if the no vote succeeds and the signal that that gives to just, not just the governments, and as Mick said, to all governments, that's at the federal, the state and the local level as well. And it's really important that what I agree entirely with Mick that we have to get it at the regional level because it's and the local levels because it's it's those local government areas that that's where our people interact the most with and with the state as well. I agree that they don't really see the difference sometimes in those three tiers of government, but they all have to come together to work together and hear the voices of their communities, and that's what really needs that I I you know really need. I think, needs to occur. On the flip side of an vote, a strong, successful yes campaign will only support what we want here in Victoria with treaty. And I think that although it's going to be the voice, those things are going to come, those other things that will come. 
with the Makarata and about that treaty and truth-telling at that national level. So I think it's really important. I think it's really worthwhile, the voice in its own right. And as I said, you have to start somewhere, and that's the very beginning, and that's really important. As I said, it's about making sure that we bring our local communities and our regional communities and our statewide communities together. I just wanted to say that one of the things, Larissa, that I've heard Daryl speak about what's occurring at that regional level, that they what they were doing and what Mick was saying, but we wanted to make sure well, Victoria was established that, and we went and, well, it was when the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission did all the work getting out to communities, it was making sure that it was their voices at that local level, that they were electing, democratically electing the people that they wanted them to represent to be their voice to the state government. And that's what we need to have, ensuring that we pursue that at the federal level as well. I think that's really important. Daryl, you've been involved the national level too with working behind the scenes on the co-design process and in other ways, particularly with your work in education and, of course, doing so much within Naranjeri and South Australia. From your perspective, how should those levels of government and what aspirations we have as First Nations people at both levels be brought together? The way I kind of look at it, Larissa, as I see it as one big kind of ecosystem. And uh, and so I don't buy into the idea that you have to have all the detail at the local and regional level before you can think about the national voice processes. I think we need to see it as a an ecosystem, but to recognise that at the national level, we're going to be more effective if we have good, solid advice coming from uh, local and regional levels that feed into that system. And I think that's the really critical part to it. It's, it's actually making sure that what we build at local and regional level is practical, that it's representative, um, and it builds capacity and supports the building of capacity at the local level. And in that way, we're going to feed into a system where we've got sort of leader-to-leader meetings happening locally and regionally, leader-to-leader meetings happening at the national level, and you move towards what I would hope to see is nation-based, nation-to-nation recognition where our Indigenous communities, Indigenous nations across the country are being able to represent themselves through this process. And and if we can get to that point, I, I think we're on the way to doing some remarkable things and addressing the things that are important to our communities, some of the things that have been talked about in relation to services, but also more broadly in relation to decision-making around our aspirations and future aspirations. And I think if we can make that ecosystem work and build capacity to to help it function effectively, then we've got a real chance. Daryl, I just want to pick up on something you said there, which is about inspiration. And I thought for my final question to each of you, which I'll make a little bit different for each of you, I would get a bit of inspiration given how much uh, you've done, how much wisdom you hold and how much we can learn from each of you. And I'll start with you, Uncle Mick. I wonder if you could share with us for people in those states that haven't gone down the truth treaty road yet, I wonder what your advice would be for those jurisdictions. You just got to keep fighting, and and I think what we've landed on, and and again led by Victoria taking the first leap into this, that treaties aren't going to be, you know, the sun's still going to come up in the east after we get treaties. It's not the end of the world as we know it for non-indigenous people. As a matter of fact, it will be a new world that we can all bask in the fruits of this nation. So I I think you've got to just keep fighting. You know, I spent a bit of time in WA and. You know, one of the great leaders here, Rob Riley, I've never seen the admiration for anyone else across the country too much like there is here for Rob. He's passed away, of course. He used to say, you can't be wrong if you're right and you don't stop fighting because some of those people around you feel uncomfortable. You just keep fighting. And I try to live by those words of Rob on that. So it's our mob. It's a way of asserting ourselves. You know, we never ceded sovereignty, like Geraldine said at the beginning of this conversation. I think we've got to keep pushing that line. And as the traditional owners of this land, we have rights. And I don't think we should be too ashamed to assert those rights because that's what comes with us being the Indigenous people of this country. I would just encourage people to just keep fighting. Use the words of Rob Riley. I think that second bit, if 
people are uncomfortable around you when you are fighting, don't worry about that. Just keep fighting and and I think we'll get there. It's lovely to be reminded of Rob Riley's wisdom and what a warrior he was too. Oh, what a warrior. Like, you know, I don't have too many regrets in my life, but one is that I never spent as much time with him as I could have. He'd passed away by the time I landed in WA. It's had a little bit to do with him and... A couple of years ago, the family asked me to do the Rob Riley oration, then having to go and research. And, like, he was this man before his time, Rob, and, and he was a peacemaker, you know. He was, and then, you know, it was was a product of the Sister Kate's here and, and, and suffered abuse like lots of our mob did in those awful places. But then to hear what he did and what he gave to people in WA, you know, he has got to be one of our greatest leaders, Rob Riley, and I try to, like I said, live by those words of ease. It's a lovely reminder also of what Annie Geraldine said at the beginning about the importance of remembering the footsteps we follow in. Daryl, I wondered if you could give us your reflections. You spoke about being involved with a process that was going forward. It's halted. It's not where you had hoped it would be. But you're always such an optimistic person. I always get a lot of energy from you. And I wonder if you could share with us your philosophy or what keeps you going, especially when you do get those setbacks. Thanks, Teresa. Look, I'm always talking about being organised and getting ourselves organised. And so, you know, I kind of draw inspiration from overseas. I, I met and I was, had the privilege of meeting uh, Chairman Rocky Barrett from the Citizen Potawatomi Nation in the United States around Oklahoma. And I've heard him speak and I've seen this quote that I'm about to give you um, said many a time by people who are talking about nation building and goes something like this. So Rocky Barrett said, a, a poorly organised tribal government is nothing more than a bad family reunion. And it always makes me laugh. And when I, when we talk to our mob, you know, about that and you use a quote like that, they all get it. They all get the idea that, you know, there are things that we do internally that sometimes, you know, don't work to our interests. So let's think about how we're organised and let's do that very, very well. And the better we do it, the more effective we'll be in relation to our self-determination efforts. Lovely. And Annie Geraldine, of course, as I mentioned just a little moment ago, you reminded us at the beginning of how important it is to acknowledge the footsteps we walk in. But you are also very mindful of uh, looking after the generations that come behind you, which, of course, again, is reflected very much in, a, in your work, particularly in the child protection space. So I wonder if you might share with us, when you're talking to young people about their responsibility going forward, what do you say to them? I think that I have to be using quotes here and I'm using a quote from a very, very wise man, Alf Bambler, who who said to me when I was very young and didn't know what I was going to do in life, he said to me, you just make sure you get off your mum when you get out there and you work and fight for your people. And I don't use that same expression to young people, but I just remind them that what the people that have gone before us have done and what they fought for is so very important that we have to keep it, we have to retain it. I keep reminding them that they come from the oldest living culture in the world and that they need to be respected for who they are, where they come from, and then it has to be what they do. So I think it's really important to give that message to young people to say that they they know, they have to know their past to know where they're going in the future. They're the things that I would, would say, you know, what we've been able to do in here in Victoria, we've been able to bring non-Aboriginal people on this journey with us. So we're getting support and solidarity from them. People are hungry. Our young people are hungry for knowledge about our history and our culture, and so are they. There's just so much richness to share there. And I think that that hunger is leading to changing attitudes and belief. And I think that what we're going to see is we're going to see that shift in public sentiment when we do, when this we actually do go to uh, a referendum. You know, there are so many things that people want to know about, and Mick said this earlier, about they were upset about not knowing the true history of Australia. Well, our kids, you have to know the true history of Australia and so does the wider community. And I think that's where we're going to get that support 
And going back to, you know, my elders and the campaigning that they did in relation to all this work that we're doing now, this isn't new. This is what they wanted and this is what they fought for. And what we have to remember is we have to keep bringing that to the forefront and letting our younger generations know it's really important that they continue that work. All I can say in all of that, I'm just so incredibly grateful to have had those teachings and they're the teachings that I want to pass on to those younger generations. Well, we're very grateful to have had the privilege of having all three of you um, talk to us today about what's happening in each of the jurisdictions you've been working in. Such a privilege. And also, as I was listening to you speak, a great chance for us to reflect on what you each have done individually without any fanfare continuously over the years to better Um, the position of our people locally, statewide and nationally. That's the Director of the Indigenous Nations and Collaborative Futures Research Hub in the Jambana Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney, Daryl Rigney. You also heard from First Peoples Assembly of Victoria co-chair Geraldine Atkinson and former Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner Mick Gooder. To take us out this week, we'll leave you with some more music, this time from Troy Cassadaly. Here he is with Born to Survive. There's an old John Deere underneath a tree, 500 acres. Dad and me work this land until we hurt Trying to make a living out of plain old dirt Really never said nothing when Mama left Just kept his feelings to himself His pride was hurt, his heart was broke he sits and he rolls another smoke set Son, this is all I know And I guess it goes to show He said We were born to survive our bad life Generations of toil and strife
That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we highlight ongoing efforts to increase First Nations representation within the higher education sector. Yeah, I think it builds on what Steve just talked about. And that's the building of relationships and, and like, you know, to, to deliver programs and initiatives that help build positive relationships with First Nations peoples, families and communities to create a sense of belonging and community within higher education. And as Steve said, that's around demystifying the university sector. I think that's really integral to increasing access also providing financial opportunities that allows for successful transition and engagement in higher education. We know there's been plenty of research that show that financial challenges are a barrier for students, um, particularly that need to relocate to attend university. Also creating environments that are conducive to First Nations success. I always sort of say when I'm talking to the university community, I sort of take a bit of a build it and they will come approach. We need to have environments where First Nations students want, they want to be aligned to institutions that reflect their own cultural values and ethics. And we need to talk about that as well. Um, like, you know, environments that are free of racism and environments that actually empower our students to succeed. And I think that our community externally can see when universities are striving to achieve that environment and that space. And we need to really understand why our people want to do degrees. And also there's been research to show that our students come to university, the same as all the other students, to get good jobs, to earn good money, to buy a house or holiday or like, you know, buy a car or any of those aspirations. But usually the difference is their first response is that they want to get a job where they give back to community. And so what does that mean to their experience at university and through to graduation and back out into the community? How do we assist that journey? So having a deep understanding of the unique experiences of First Nations people and then work together to achieve that success. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.